What if there existed one simple solution in our fight against food insecurity, water quality, climate change, global poverty, healthcare, and our dependence on pharmaceuticals, and even the survivability of current and future pandemics? And what if that solution was literally right under our feet? Today on the Athlinks podcast, we are diving into our soil with Jeff Ketch, my friend and former colleague and current chief impact officer at the Rodale Institute. For over 70 years, the Rodale Institute has been the global leader in regenerative organic agriculture, a journey that started with J.I. Rodale's simple mission statement, healthy soil equals healthy food equals healthy people. It's a bit off the beaten path, but in our mission to help more people race more often, have more fun in the process, a healthy body is a critical starting point. Jeff gives us some much-needed hope that shows a movement gaining serious momentum. Take, for instance, a fourfold increase in direct farm-to-consumer sales in the first quarter of 2020 alone. Join us to find out how you can play your meaningful part in this movement. So if you're ready for the show, crank it up and let's go. Welcome to the Athlinks Podcast. I am your host, Troy Bousseau, coming to you from the icy streets of Broomfield, Colorado. It is December 15th, 2020, and this is episode 20. What's up, Jeff? Hey, Troy. How are you today? Yeah, man, I'm good. I'm good. What an honor it is to reconnect with you in this way. Oh, well, I promise you the honor is all mine. Today we have Jeff Catch on the podcast. Um, as Jeff just insinuated, he and I used to work together at Lifetime Fitness. But what is important today is Jeff's affiliation with the Rodale Institute. What is your title with Rodale? Chief Impact, Chief Impact Officer. Okay. And so you came from Chief Growth Officer before, correct? Or something along those lines? Uh, yeah, that's been a bit, a bit, of, a bit of an evolution. You know, uh, I work for a mission-driven impact organization. And so we measure our success, not in the bottom line, but in how much impact we're having in the world. So we all felt appropriate that my title should reflect that. Oh, that's great. That's cool. Yeah. And, and, and impact you guys are having. So that's the, I, I really, um, the fact that we work together is, is not at all the, the core of why you're on today. It was really, you had posted something that caught, um, the eye of myself and, uh, Shauna, our delivery manager, and just thought, you know, with, with everything going on in the world, um, micro and macro, that it would be fantastic to have you on and talk about some, um, well, lots of different things, sustainable farming, but that's way too small a subject even to encapsulate, I think, what we're going to be talking about over the next hour or so. So, so yeah, welcome. For sure. Yeah, so, thank, thank you, Troy. And I think there's a real connection here. I mean, if I remember correctly, Lifetime is the Healthy Way of Life company, correct? That is, that is correct. And uh, our founder, our founder, J.I. Rodell had something to say about a healthy way of life. So yeah. I have a feeling that we're going to connect the dots before long here. That's excellent. So give us a little bit of, of your background. It's it's pretty varied. And again, you and I work together in the capacity of um, you were the um, VP of sales and marketing for the collection of businesses that um, Athlinks, Chronotrack, the Lifetime Events business and everything worked together. But um, give us a little bit of your kind of uh, personal backstory. Yeah. And let me start by saying that it's a little surreal to be having this conversation with you. Um, you know, no pun intended, but it feels like a lifetime ago it does. since I was doing this, since I was doing that work. But I've been on a journey, I guess you could say, and uh, just been following the thread of my life. And um, I, I guess you'd probably have to go all the way back to my childhood. Um, fast forward to college. I've always had a real passion for health and wellness and for well-being. 
uh, having grown up kind of a healthy, unhealthy adolescent, you know, had a lot of health problems as a, as a young boy and, and uh, really prevented me from living, living out a lot of my, my, my desires to be an athlete. And uh, I sort of was able to channel all of that energy uh, around the age of 13 into the question of how can I get healthy? How do I empower myself towards health? And I never will forget this. I remember being very sick one day. I had um, been home from school and that was a pretty common theme as a young kid and told my mom, Hey mom, you know, I'm done. Like, I don't want to live this way anymore. Wow. You know, do me a favor. Next, next time you go to the grocery store, can you buy me a magazine? There was just this like infomercial up on the, on the television that afternoon. It was for a magazine called men's health. Remember, you know, back in the early nineties, yeah, a lot of the publishing companies would use TV to promote, uh, subscriptions. And so I said, mom, I think this magazine could help me. So she buys me a copy of men's health. She brings it home, you know, like any young boy in the 1990s, I read the magazine, like cover to cover about nine times. And then I remember I made like a little grocery list. I was like, all right, mom, the magazine just told me I should be eating all these foods if I want to be healthy. So go buy me all next time you go to the store, you know, buy me all these foods. And so I started over the next couple of weeks, I started changing what I ate. And little by little, over the course of several weeks, months, an entire year, I got off all the medicines that I had been taking for like asthma and allergies and all the chronic health conditions I had lost you know, weight. And by the time I was in early high school, started playing sports. And that, that was sort of a defining moment for, for my life where I connected with food, the power of food mm. to transform my health. So and how, that really set me up. So, the, I mean, this is like the, you know, you said mid early nineties, there's no, well, there's no internet really to speak of very, very like 93, 94, it starts to become something, but this, you're kind of way ahead of the curve here in terms of uh, you know, sort of um, self you know, doing the research on your own, connecting health. Um, mm-hmm. This is, I think, uh, I mean, the funny thing is to hear you say that, you know, you were on these medications at the time. The reality was if you compare, I guess, the impact of pharma in the early 90s to now, 30 years later, almost 25 years later, it probably, it's almost like quaint, you know, to look back at that type of thing. But yeah, I mean, everybody that I knew, uh, in Phoenix was, you know, like, uh, allergy shots, you know, weekly and those types of things. So, so you were on medications and things just to sort of sustain yourself. Oh gosh, that was my, my entire young, uh, my entire childhood was nothing but memories of trips to the doctor, trips to the pharmacy, trips to the allergy lab. Wow. That was like the cycle. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember I always felt awful. Like I never really felt vitality. I never even knew what that word meant. Wow. Do you know what I mean? It was just like a low grade feeling sick. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. And so you start putting these things together and was, um, I mean, if you can remember back to this time, was it, was there something that really caught your mind in that commercial for men's health? Was it something that was building? Did you have an intuition that like you would, um, you would feel bad after you would eat certain types of food? Like where was your mind at at the time? I, I love that you chose to use the word intuition because I think that it's exactly what was happening inside of me. It was like this innate sense that the way that I felt had everything to do with what I was putting into my body. Mm. And as I began to unpack this, you know, this one magazine, 
I real I saw these pictures and articles about people who were changing their lives by what they were eating and how they were moving their body. So I knew that movement and fitness and nutrition had something to do with empowering me to feel better. So I was like, what do I have to lose? You know, I'm yeah. 13. Um, I was watching, I went, I happened to go to a school that had like amazing athletes, like all the boys that were my age and that were my friends were like incredible athletes. And I couldn't even play sports. Every time I would try to play sports, it, it hurt my lungs to run. Wow. And I just thought to myself, there's gotta be a way to unlock the potential inside of me. Mm. And that, you know, that was really like, um, a very empowering and formative year of my life, the age of 13, because it began to connect me with the power of food as medicine. Yeah. Yeah. Which is deep, deep in the, the mission of, um, of Rodale. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I'm sure we'll get to that. Yeah. So, so that I, was, so that was, that was 13. And then, um, fast forward to, um, around graduating from college, I happened to pursue a, a degree in marketing at, in the, in university. Um, and around my senior year, I, I had been asking the question, like, how do I put together my degree in marketing with my passion for health and wellness? And yeah. I was literally asking that question almost like audibly, like out loud to people. <laughs> like, how do I do that? What I, I don't, I don't want to just be like a guy working at a desk inside of a big corporation. Like, I actually want to work out of my passion. And so a friend of mine said, well, Jeff, we're, we're from Pennsylvania. Don't you know about Rodale? And I said, what's Rodale? Wow. And someone said, well, they publish Men's Health Magazine. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, at that point, the internet was a thing. And so I did my homework and I was like, oh my God, all like men's health, mountain bike, bicycling, runner's world, all these magazines that literally embodied me yeah. was published eight miles from the very home I was, I grew up in. So small world. it let it, right. So it led me to apply for an entry-level marketing job. And I uh, was hired there in September of 2001. And that really set me on the journey that led me ultimately to Boulder, Colorado, working for Lifetime Fitness. Yeah, yeah. So going back to when you were 13, how long did it take you to begin to start to see a difference in your health? Oh, gosh, I, I think it was right away. I mean, I remember yeah. um, the, the that particular season of my life, I had, I had sustained an injury. I had a, a broken my ankle, and so I was at home um, healing. Uh, I couldn't go to school for like a four or six week period. I was in a cast and on crutches. And, um, I remember thinking to myself, I was like at the lowest point of my young life. I'm like, I'm depressed. I'm laying on this couch. I couldn't go to school. My friends were like sending notes, home, like get well cards home to me. And I'm like, am I going to sit around and watch cartoons for six weeks? Or am I going to like use this time to my benefit? Mm. And I remember my, my dad had like a little weight set in the basement. So I remember, uh, saying to my mom, well, if I can just get down the stairs, I'll just sit down and any exercise I could do seated while changing my diet, I'm just going to move my body however I can yeah. and eat this food. And I remember I went back to school six weeks later without the cast and like, you know, 20, 30 pounds later and everyone's like, where's Jeff? <laughs> what wow. happened to Jeff? Wow. So, which is like the opposite of what would normally happen because the old you probably would have sat there for six weeks in a cast and gained another 10, 20 pounds just being sedentary right. and feeling miserable. Right. I have a, um, a, a similar journey with food that I, I just wanted to share real quick because it illustrates the immediacy that I experienced with food and my health. So I had exercise-induced asthma. I smoked in college like a moron for about five, six years. Um, and then from then, when I quit is when I started, you know, oh, I'm going to run, I'm going to get healthy, et cetera. And so, you know, I was a 
hyper athlete growing up and things. And then in college, I did the music thing for a while. And so I had developed some really um, bad habits and things. And so when I started running, I just accepted the fact that now I had um, exercise induced asthma. So every time I ran, rode, swam, whatever, I had to use an inhaler 100% of the time. Um, I could sort of get around it if I did a very slow, very deliberate 20 minute type warm up, you know, like I would literally have to start walking and then a slow jog, that type of thing. And then one time, this is maybe 10 years in, I noticed that every time I ate at like my mom's or my grandparents, I would feel like I ate a feast and I would just eat a normal size dinner that I would eat anywhere else. But it was the only place where I was eating like baguettes and French bread and, and a lot of bread and wheat and things like that. So it was, you know, the whole gluten thing was out there in the, in the sort of wild. And so I, I just thought to myself like, well, what if I just, what if I just cut wheat out? Wonder how this would make me feel. And I was sort of like, you know, piece of toast with peanut butter for breakfast, uh, a peanut butter and banana sandwich is like a mid morning pre-training snack, a sandwich for lunch. So I was eating a ton of bread at the time. Mm-hmm. And I kid you not, within one week of cutting weed out completely, I was off the inhaler within one week. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, mm-hmm. it was that, and then I would reintroduce wheat and it was, it was that fast also. Then the next day I would feel pretty lousy. I've gotten it to a point now where I can, I'm a pretty low grade. So if I eat a slice of pizza or something like that, it's no big deal is, you know, because I think I lowered my overall level. But anyway, I just wanted to, um, I think for a lot of people who sort of know how I should do this thing, I should sort of try to fix myself, but they look at this like it's not a 10-year thing. It's a, it, in some cases, it could be 10 days to really feel a massive impact of changing your diet. Oh, yeah. yeah. Completely. Yeah, completely. And I, and I, I can relate um, later on in my adult life, which we'll get into here in this conversation, um, I had, I have had similar profound experiences with food transformative where, um, you change literally a couple things and you see monumental shifts in your, in your health and your performance literally days later. Yeah, that's crazy. So, um, so Rodale, I've always known Rodale as a, as a publishing company, um, and then come to find out about the whole Rodale Institute. I mean, this is an organization that dates back to the four, 1940s. So we're, you know, 70, 80 years into this. Um, what, what, what came first, the Institute or the, or were they two simultaneously? Yeah, technically the publishing company came about five years prior to the nonprofit. But what's really interesting is to, is to look at our history and our founder, J.I. Rodale, uh, was a wealthy entrepreneur from New York City. Uh, he was born into an impoverished family and had really began to have experienced his own challenges with his health. He had a long history of unhealth in his family. His father and all of his father's brothers died very young from heart issues. Mm. And then J.I. Rodale, as he um, became successful in his business career, he uh, began to experience health challenges as well. Um, around the 1930s, his manufacturing company had been based in New York City, and they were doing really well. Um, He was beginning to accumulate some wealth, and he remembers saying to his wife, maybe we should consider moving out of New York City out into the country where I can grow my own food, we Mm. could be healthier, we could have access to fresh air. It's a lot of kind of what's going on in our own uh, sort of, yeah, collective conscience right now. This was happening in the 1930s. 
And he thought, well, if I move the manufacturing company out to Pennsylvania, it'll lower our overhead. We can find you know, less expensive workforce. So they do. So they move out to Allentown, Pennsylvania, into the, into the city. Allentown was a pretty thriving metropolis at that time, very manufacturing focused. And they lived in a very nice home in, in the city. But then he thought to himself, well, I live on the edge of this beautiful countryside. What if we go buy a farm and we can start growing our own food? So that's exactly what he mm. and his wife and, and children did. They moved, they moved to this little town of Emmaus, Pennsylvania, and he bought a 40-acre farm, which I happen to be sitting about a quarter, eight, a quarter mile from right now. My wife and I live very close to that original farmstead. Uh, he, starts, he starts asking the question, well, how do you farm, right? So what do you do? In the 1930s, if you wanted to understand agriculture, you would go to the local university. They called it the extension office. Uh, Abraham Lincoln set up the land grant system in the 1800s, and every state had a land grant. And he, I, I almost imagine the conversations would go something like this. He, he went to Penn State University, mm -hmm. and the extension officer would say, "Oh, OJI, oh, you want to you want to understand farming? Well, it's really simple. You go out and you buy these things called inputs, chemicals. You bring them onto your farm. You apply them to the soil in the spring." You come through and you plant what you're going to plant, and then you apply some more chemicals, and then you harvest. And that's how you grow food. And to be honest with you, Troy, that idea made sense to him at first because he understood the process of manufacturing, right? right? If you want to make really good products, you need really good components and inputs coming into your factory. Yeah, You have to bring in the highest end material. So that idea actually made sense to him. But then he said, well, I want to be healthy. So this is in the family. 30s, and they were talking this way with uh, with chemicals and things. That was that was the dawn of the industrial ag revolution. It was around wow. the 1930s, 19 early 1940s. Right. I mean, he was right at the precipice of that, and wow. that was the kind of advice he was getting. And so he said, "All right, all right. Could someone just could someone please attempt to explain to me what alchemy happens in the soil yeah. that would take these toxic chemicals and turn them into healthy food? Right. Could someone explain that?" And of course, no one could. And so that really, that was really like sort of the, 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 the genesis moment for J.I. where he literally took chalk and a chalkboard and he wrote what is still our mission statement today. He said, healthy soil equals healthy food equals healthy people. That's our mission statement. And he, he, he wanted to get his findings. He started, he started experimenting with organic agriculture. He actually is the guy that uh, is credited with coining the term organic as it's used today. So he's okay. the pioneer of this whole movement in the 1940s. In 1942, he was so excited about all he was learning that he said, you know what? I'm going to start a magazine at, just to get the word out. And he called it Organic Gardening Magazine. He started a publishing company in 1942. And then in 1947, he launched what it was called the Soil and Health Foundation. Okay. Which today is known as the Rodale Institute. So oh, that's, okay. that's been our evolution. So cool. publishing company and then a nonprofit, which was his way of getting the, the science out into the world yeah. around all that he was ex ex uh, experiencing. Yeah. When I told my wife that you were coming on and who you represented with the Rodale Institute, you would have thought, like I said, Santa Claus is coming on the podcast. She was so <laughs> excited. She's like, the Rodale? Oh my God. She's like, because she remembers you, obviously. <laughs> And she's like, wait a second, he's running the Rodale Institute? Well, he's not running it, but, you know, he's, yeah, he's got a pretty, pretty uh, high up title there. So she was really excited to have you uh, come on the show. So I, I debated whether or not to have her sort of co-host the show because she's oh. about 10 times smarter and about 100 times smarter in these areas than I am. So, uh, but I'll try to ask well, some all good the questions. Well, all the more reason, I was going to say, all the more reason for us to host in, uh, a round two of this discussion. Yeah, indeed. Someday. 
indeed. And so um, I, I, you know, it's funny, I read through some of the literature um, that you sent me and on the website and things, and admittedly, I started kind of writing down some of these um, statistics and about like a page and a half in, I, f I realized like how futile it was in, in, in meaning, um, you know, I was reading like 0.9% of adolescents, 2.2% of adult men, 3.5% of adult women meet the daily uh, recommended needs of fruits and vegetables. And I mean, these lists mm. just go on and on and on of all of the deficiencies. I think you guys refer to it as silent hunger. Mm -hmm. I, hidden yeah, hidden, hidden, hunger. hidden yeah. hunger. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, it's just uh, like, you know, when I, when I, I look at um, things like climate change where mm -hmm. there's um, whether you call it debate or whatever it is, there, there are certain things that you could argue, you know, man-made versus natural, all of these other things. Then I look at things like soil health, water, mm -hmm cleanliness mm -hmm. those those are in front of our faces and as as mm -hmm. as important as climate change is i look at like our food and water supplies in places like flint michigan mm -hmm. where we know about today and the lawsuits that are happening today on how we mm -hmm. are poisoning our our food and water supplies and it feels like if this is the if this is sort of the path you know forward because this all has big impacts for the other things like climate change. Like if you sort of fix mm -hmm. this on the micro scale, then mm -hmm. the rest of it may just take care of itself. Um, how do you guys think about, I mean, in some cases it's, it's amazing that the Rodale Institute in one way, shape or form has existed since the forties, but it's also, it's almost a little disheartening where it's like, man, you guys have been fighting this battle for now 70 plus years. Time. And things are getting yeah. better. I can certainly walk into a Whole Foods and buy the foods that I want to, you know. Um, but it, like, what, why can I not, why, you know, why is it so difficult to eat healthy these days? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Well, and, and I want to underscore everything that you just said. You could not be more correct, Troy. I, we call it the power of the plate at Rodale Institute. So we believe that every person on this planet has a role to play in getting us out of the mess we're in. Yeah, uh, we all we all vote three times a day with what we put on our plate. And if you want to fix um, climate, if you want to fix the chronic disease epidemic, we have to look way upstream at agriculture. Yeah, because agriculture is fundamentally broken. The reason we got here was because of the promise of chemical conventional agriculture that was solely focused on yields and profit. That's how we got here. Um, that all started around pre and post-World War II. And it was a promise to farmers that we could use chemistry instead of biology to produce food at, um, at a more pro in a more profitable way. And, um, you know, honestly, they were successful at that at first. That was actually a really successful path for a while. Um, you mentioned something earlier in our conversation around the early 90s and you were talking about uh, how like what a, how radical it must have been for me to recognize the pharmaceuticals I was putting in my body was doing something detrimental to me. Mm. But it was actually the year 1997 where we began to see this chronic inflection, this dramatic inflection point in, mm. in chronic disease and human health. And that was actually the year we, we introduced the first GMO seeds. Oh, so 1997 was like a really, really pivotal year in uh, our environmental and human health history here in the United States. We, we could actually, we, scientists are beginning to correlate uh, 
the introduction of Roundup Ready, uh, glyphosate ready seeds into our food system and its impact on water, on air quality, on chronic disease epidemics. And so we've been sort of one big, great 70 year, we've all been part of one 70 year experiment yeah. of this thing called industrial agriculture. And, and you know, it's- it was, G, was the GMO movement, was that, was that also about yield versus, uh, you know, more nutrient density, for instance? Like has, has the goal always trended more toward yield and um, storage and things like that versus health? Uh, it has everything to do with yields. In fact, Troy, the, the words nutrient and density don't even come up in conversation in our in the U.S. inside of the USDA, inside of the big ag industry. No, no marketer has found a way to monetize nutrient density. And so we, uh, I don't care if you are, you know, buying all your groceries at Whole Foods. Every single one of us is a byproduct of nutrient deficiencies because of the depletion of our soils because of industrial agriculture. No one has, has uh, been removed from that. Wow. So I, I want to read a quick quote um, or an extraction from the Power of the Plate white paper that you'd sent over. Um, it goes like this. Is the goal of farming not to support human life by giving us the food and nutrients our bodies require? Is the goal of healthcare and doctors not to make us well? Then how did farming become solely about efficiency and yields and healthcare about managing expensive disease and what is the path forward? So that kind yeah. of sums up that sort of one-two punch right now where you think about our, our food supply really being um, uh, focused solely on yield, our medical industry being solely focused on managing. It's funny, it's funny that it used managing expensive disease instead of prevention, of course. Um, right. You know, but sort of the, um, I think we all have this, again, bringing intuition into the conversation, but this intuition that the, um, whether they're nefarious or not, but certainly the, um, the financial incentives of certain businesses are not aligned in our best interests. That is correct. Um, our food and agricultural and pharmaceutical systems are really based on this idea of, of, of profit and perpetuating systems. You know, it's funny, you and I are doing this interview in mid-December as the Biden administration appoints cabinet members. And, you know, ask any, anyone from any recent administration and the Secretary of Health and Human Services in just about every cabinet meeting sits literally on the opposite end of the table as the Secretary of Agriculture. They don't even shake hands. They don't mm. even have conversations. They don't, they don't. We have become so divorced as a society from where our food comes from and how that food is produced that we think that agriculture has nothing to do with human health. Most people don't even correlate those two things, including our own government. And so what happens, Troy? We now see, uh, you know, last year there was a massive merger of Bayer Chemical, which is the biggest pharmaceutical company in the world, purchased Monsanto for, I think, $66 billion. So imagine that the biggest pharma company in the world buys the biggest food company in the world. Mm. You know, at the end of the day, Monsanto is a food company. They own, what, 90% of all the seed genomes in the world. Yeah. Like Mo Monsanto pretty much has a monopoly on, on seed. And so now, now where we are finally seeing food and pharma coming together is in the 
most catastrophic sense. Wow. So we we need to have a new conversation. And the conversation, the whole reason Rodale Institute authored this paper is because it goes all the way back to J.I. Rodale's, Rodale's original thesis for our work. When he said healthy soil equals healthy food equals healthy people, what he was really saying is that our job as farmers is not to produce food. It's to produce healthy people. Mm. And so if that's true, then farmers should actually be on the front lines of human health. And doctors and farmers need to begin to have a conversation. And that's that. That is who um, we'll we'll include a link to this. I I assume anybody can download this white paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'll, yes. I'll, inc- I'll include. It's a really good read, actually. Um, it's really not my wheelhouse. It's it's um, but it was very digestible and and uh, a really interesting read. <laughs> Again, in in some ways, a little not. I won't say it's disheartening, but you sort of like read these statistics and you think, okay. Um, and this is where I want to take the conversation next. We know it's sort of like the same thing as climate change, right? It's, it's that we, we sort of see the, the issues. We see that um, there are certain solutions that we could implement, but they are so grand in scale. So as, mm-hmm. as you and me, you know, uh, just regular old people, like how do we start to affect change and throw our support behind these things? You, you had a, an interesting quote a few minutes ago where you said we vote three times a day um, by what we put on our plate. So how do we, like, I'm sick and tired of waiting around, frankly. My, my mm. wife has been on the forefront of this since, you know, she and I met. And it just feels like, I don't know, there's just not enough progress being made in this area. Um, so yeah. how do we, like, yeah. how do we do our part in all of this? Yeah, well, let me start by giving you some hope, Troy. Um, 2020 was by far the greatest seismic shift in this movement happened this year. Mm. And I think it was the pandemic that really began to expose a lot of frailties in our nation's food and healthcare systems. Uh, Just to give you an example, uh, back in March, uh, direct from farm to consumer sales were up 420% year over year across the United States. So individual consumers like you and me, literally going to farms to purchase food, cutting out grocery stores and, and redefining. We saw the entire supply chain become upended. In 1945, some 45% of all of the produce that people ate in America came from our own backyards. Today in 2020, 17% of all the food that we purchase is imported from other countries. Okay, wait a second. So what happened during the- Go yeah. back over the, say those numbers again. So in 1945, during World War II, uh, 45% of all the produce that we put on our plates in American homes came from our own backyards. Remember the whole Victory Garden era? We yeah. were literally producing food in our own backyards. So you literally mean our okay. own backyard. So people were producing the the lettuce and the cucumbers and things that they were going to be putting on their table at night. Growing food, correct. Wow. And then today, in 2019, 17% of all the food we purchase at the grocery store comes from other countries. Wow. So we've seen this 70-year departure from connection to source, right? Like we as a society were so hyper connected to agriculture just 70 years ago, like one lifetime ago, right? Yeah. And today we walk into a Walmart in January and expect to see tomatoes. Right. Yeah. That's what I was, so when you talk about other countries, um, it's like an avocado has to be grown in Mexico or, or even farther South in order to have those year round. How much of that, um, 
I guess, foreign sourced agriculture is happening because we are using our land to produce, you know, corn almost exclusively rather than using it for the, the things that we should be growing to sustain humans instead of cattle, let's say. Um, yes. Versus just, hey, we just want riper tomatoes in January. Yes, yes, yeah, you're right on it. I mean, we have uh, redefined our agricultural system here in the United States so much so that most of what, m- most of what we produce on our farmland, farmland in this country is commodity grain that's not even used for food. It's used mm-hmm. for feeding livestock, industrial applications, and ethanol. So we basically have exported most of the growing of the very food that ends up on our plates is now grown in other countries so that we can produce a bunch of cheap stuff on farmland here in this country. Do you, do you have a sense for, obviously we would have to change our dietary desires a little bit, right? No avocados in, in January kind of thing. But of the 50 states, or let's say 48 continental, um, or, you know, c- uh, contiguous United States, how, how many of them, or within like one state over, could sustain that population? Is it pretty universal across the board? Do you know what I'm asking? Um, no. So I think we have this perception that like, um, you know, New York, Pennsylvania, California, um, and then a couple of other states grow all of the food. And then you have, you know, the Midwest where that's where all the corn and, you know, potatoes and things, you know, but it's it's sort of like these, just a handful of states feed the rest of the country. And that may be mm-hmm. true. I'm just asking, mm-hmm. like, if we went more, that feels like a move to, again, like increasing yield and that type of efficiency mm-hmm. versus saying, okay, well, if at one time in the 40s, within a lifetime of people who are still alive, you know, mm-hmm. we went from 45% of our food being grown literally in our backyards to now we are so disconnected from our food source. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'll be honest, like my next door neighbor has got this great garden and they give us peppers and cucumbers and things. And it feels a little weird. I mean, it, you know what I mean? I mean, it's delicious. It, yeah. it is delicious. So it's, and it's, you know, yeah. but it's almost like, um, it's almost like what you hear when people, you know, will like go hunting and then eat that meat. It's like, uh, I don't know. It's, it's like, I don't want to know. Yeah, it's my part of our, it's part from. of our disconnection. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, but, but at the same time, here's the hope. Um, you, you had asked the question, how do we get out of this? How do, how do we change the paradigm? And this year alone, 22 million new gardens were added to backyards in America. Wow. So all of a sudden people were stuck at home working from home offices, the pandemic hits, grocery store, grocery store shelves go bare. Yeah. What do we do? We take to the garden again. 22 million new gardens. What I'm ultimately saying is we need to democratize our food system. Mm. The closer we can get to source, the, 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 the more nutrient dense our food becomes, the more we, we can actually, we as consumers, vote three times a day by what we put on our plate. That's why we called that white paper the power of the plate. Yeah. Because we all choose. And so what I'm suggesting is to people like you and your wife that live in Boulder, Colorado, surrounded by these amazing organic farms, literally two miles outside of town, you guys have amazing opportunity to keep your food dollars right in your own backyard. You're voting with your dollar. And you're saying, I want to support people in my community that are producing food grown in healthy soil where that food didn't have to get trucked 
from Mexico. Now, granted, you can't do that 12 months a year. No one can, and I get it, and that's fine. But can you imagine if everyone listening to this episode said, listen, we're just going to take 25% yeah. of our monthly food budget, and we're going to keep 25% of our monthly food budget in our community. Yeah. My wife and I live um, on the edge of Allentown, Pennsylvania. So we're 60 miles north of Philadelphia. We're 70 miles from New York City. But I literally can get on my bicycle from my driveway and pedal to several farms and farmers markets, of which they're all producing amazing food probably eight months a year. Yeah. So that's what I'm, it's a paradigm shift. Yeah. And that's, and that's ultimately my question is that's great for me who lives in, you know, right outside of Boulder and you who lives right outside of Allentown, Pennsylvania. And we have these really rich, um, although, I mean, it's not like Boulder ever comes up as like the agriculture center of the country. No. And so I'm, I guess my question ultimately is given the, you know, in this case, so 50 states, right? So can, can, can people in every state, in pretty much every locality, is this food as readily available where they can uh, shift their paradigm? Uh, I can't speak for all 50 states, but what I can say is that every decision made by every consumer can make a difference. And, and yeah. hear me out on that. So I call it degrees of separation, which we talked about. We, we talked about how we've become so separated here in this conversation from, from agriculture. But degrees of reconnection starts with question number one, what can I do in my own backyard? Yeah. Or if I live in a city, can I grow a basil plant with my child in a pot on my windowsill? And just showing a child the miracle of this basil becoming a plant and then snipping some leaves off and putting it on top of some pasta, that act alone can change a child's life, right? Yeah. So that's a degree of connection. Uh, if I live in uh, Des Moines, Iowa, I likely have a choice between a big box grocery store or a local farmer's market on a Sunday morning. Yeah. Or if not a local farmer's market, can I go to a local co-op? Can I keep my food dollars in my backyard as much as possible? Yeah. And I think from Alaska to Hawaii to New Jersey to Alabama, I think we all have that choice. And I do think that there are opportunities to reconnect. Yeah. And I think probably if you don't have that choice, I guess, you know, the ultimately sustainable agriculture growing up in Phoenix. I mean, if we, if we can have rich agriculture in the middle of the desert, then it's probably Mm -hmm. sustainable just in just about every place that you could. Do you remember there being thriving farms there in Phoenix? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, it's, it's, um, there, there are a lot of different crops and things, and it, and and I think it's sort of beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So I think if you were probably coming from a Pennsylvania farm, let's say, and you were to go down to Phoenix and eat the tomatoes and things like that, they would taste different and probably not as flavorful and that type of thing. But yeah, I mean, there's, you could certainly, um, and again, I don't have a problem. I don't think anybody has a problem necessarily eating produce in other countries when the need arises. Right. So when it's, you know, avocados in different parts of the year and things like that. So, um, uh, you know, rounding out your, your, your diet and your palate and things like that, uh, is, uh, you know, we'll, we'll go where the food is obviously, but getting away from this constant focus on yield and yield alone. Um, because as you said, like we, the, the difference is so stark when you look at people who have access to organic, um, healthy, whole foods versus people who don't, whether it's through um, income or 
location or whatever it is, it is not a small difference. It's kind of like what you and I started this conversation about is that when you change your diet, it's, this isn't a years long process in a lot of regards. It is, it is a days long process where you can either radically improve your health or radically destroy your health. Right. At Rodale Institute, we believe in the power of creating models. So uh, as a, as a nonprofit, you know, we're 70 people trying to change the world, right? We can't do that in isolation. We have to do it in partnership. And we have to create models that hopefully can become replicated in other parts of the country and ultimately in other parts of the world. And a few years ago, we, we, we were really convicted that everyone deserves the right to organic food. Everyone. I don't care what socioeconomic background. So we started a program that actually accomplished two goals. Number one, Rodale Institute wants to train farmers. We want to train the next generation of farmers. Uh, so we have students that come to us and spend an entire season um, sometimes between 40 and 60 interns a year that come from literally all over the world. Most of them are college educated. Uh, some, many of them are women that say, I want to be a farmer. And where do they come? They come to Rodale hmm. and they produce food. That's, that's their assignment is to learn the art of farming. And the byproduct of that is they grow all this produce and we're, we're a research organization. So we don't have like a market. We don't like have a place to sell this produce. So we thought, what would it look like if we took all that produce, put it on some refrigerated trucks, and every Thursday drive it into inner city Allentown or in, inner city Reading, which are these two neighboring towns to Rodale. They're low income. There's a lot of low income, low access families that live in these food deserts in mm -hmm. Allentown. And would you believe that uh, we started something called a mobile market where we, we literally set up shop at the local YMCA every Thursday at three o'clock and hundreds of people if not thousands of people from the community come literally by, by they walk or they take the bus and for 15 or $30 a week, they take enough food home to feed their family, the best organic food in the world. Wow. And by the way, our state government got so behind that idea that they allowed those families to get double SNAP benefits. So they get double SNAP, uh, double food stamps, their okay. food stamps count twice. <clears throat> so what we're trying to do is democratize food. And, and, and I believe that that's really what all of us are being called to do is how can we democratize our food consumption so that everyone in the system benefits, including the farmer. Yeah. So how do you spread that? Um, so do these people who come to the, um, to the Institute to learn how to, you said grow food. I'm going to say they learn how to create healthy people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, but, um, so then do they go, these are people from all around the country or in some cases all around the world, I would assume, and learning how to do these. And then they take those practices back home with them. That's exactly right. Yeah. There's, um, a lot of these people that come and train with us want to start a career in farming. So most of them go back home, uh, to hopefully engage in agriculture. You know, yeah. there's a statistic that says, um, we, we currently in the United States have six times the amount of farmers over the age of 65 than we do under the age of 35. So we're seeing a like, in, if you look at the pipeline, there's a real shortage of farmers. Yeah. And so we are trying to create a whole new paradigm uh, in, in, in engaging young people in agriculture so that when they go home to the family farm, they, they take it over, but they take over using different management practices. Yeah. Cause I, you know, I look at things like, um, uh, you know, the, um, uh, what do you call it? The, uh, the rotation of crops and things like that, mm -hmm. which doesn't seem to be happening. I mean, again, you asked about Phoenix and that cornfield is a cornfield every single year for the, you know, whatever, 40 years that I lived there. 
Um, and then you uh, you mentioned the the basil on the pasta. Have you seen the biggest little farm? You must have seen well, that. I, I actually have gotten to know John and Molly pretty well. They, okay. they're awesome friends of Rodale. Love that uh, movie. Nice. So that I that is not my kind of movie at all. That was the best. Not only documentary, that movie stuck with me like one of the, you know, like the way that a, like Saving Private Ryan stays with you. Yeah, I could not stop thinking. My wife and I have watched it multiple times. And you mentioned, I mean, they lived in this little apartment in Los Angeles. And it was basically their struggle to like grow tomatoes on their balcony. And then their dog being a little yippy. But um, sort of started this whole thing for them. And if you want to, I think if... If anybody out there listening wants to see a distillation of what I have so poorly and Jeff so incredibly articulated today is that documentary is so good at showing how the last 80 years worth of agricultural um, philosophy has failed us and how quickly with a little bit of ingenuity and hard work can so quickly take a farm and, I mean, it is, I've never seen a transformation like what you see there in the seven years on that farm. That's called, that that, that actually, their their philosophy that John and Molly put into action, it's called regenerative agriculture. And that's what uh, uh, J.I. Rodale coined the term organic in the 1940s. His son, Bob Rodale, coined the term regenerative agriculture. And and that's a systems-based approach to agriculture. And John and Molly Chester in Biggest Little Farm do an amazing job of bringing that philosophy to life. And I cannot more highly recommend that movie. And if you love that movie, Troy, you have to see Kiss the Ground if you haven't okay. yet. That's I'll another that one down. Yeah, so homework assignment for the audience is uh, is to watch Biggest Little Farm and Kiss the Ground. Okay. Two fantastic documentaries. I'm sure my wife has already seen Kiss the Ground, but she'll watch it again if I want to watch it. Um, so talk, tell me about regenerative regenerative farming, the difference between just organic, is it name only, it doesn't sound like it, um, and and just how that movement has transformed and the ground that it's gaining. So give me kind of the definition yeah, sure. of regenerative. For sure, and it's an evolution. Um, and, and I think it's important for your audience, who primarily, I'm assuming, most of your audience are at athletic-minded, mm-hmm. right? And it's, it's, it's very similar. So conventional agriculture uh, is very akin to pharmaceutical intervention, right? We go, most of us go to the, the doctor when we're sick. The doctor said, says, okay, what are your symptoms? Oh, okay, here's a pill. That's what conventional agriculture is. It's uh, there's a weed or a pest yeah. or a nutrient deficiency in the soil. And so we go to the chemical company and they say, here's something to spray on the crop. Here's something to apply to the soil. And those are, those are very, um, that's sort of a very prescriptive approach in regenerative organic agriculture, um, at Rodale Institute, we've defined it as regenerative organic. What we're saying is let's get chemicals out of the system. Number one, number two, it's in, let's begin to look at agriculture as a systems based approach. Not problem solution, but how do we look at that cornfield that you noticed has been corn year after year after year and begin to realize this is a living, breathing system. Soil has something like 10 billion microorganisms in one teaspoon. Wow. So there's 10 billion microorganisms in one teaspoon of healthy soil. If that's true, then soil is alive. It's a living, breathing organism. And as such, we need to treat it that way. And so in regenerative organic agriculture, we're saying, Let's work with biological processes instead of chemical processes. 
Um, it's no different than an athlete training for a big event. You need to rest that soil. So you talk about crop rotations. You need to feed that soil with nutrients. So that's where we use uh, different ways like compost and different types of cover crops that can be grown to put nutrients back into that soil. And then we need to water it. We need to train it. You know, it's, it's a whole approach that a farmer uses that takes a systems strategy as opposed to problem solution. So it, it's not harder per se. It's just it's a different management mindset that we're talking about at Rodale. So when you say it's it's not harder, I read some of the the literature where, you know, ultimately organic in some ways can be cheaper, more efficient, et cetera, mm-hmm. um, and less work in the long term. Cause kind of as you said, and one of the things that that is really demonstrated in that in that film is by I guess also in healthcare, right? It's that yeah, for maybe a day or two, like in the short term, you might fix the problem, you might destroy the weed. But then ultimately, the downstream effects of that, you know, the soil erosion, what happens the next time a big rain comes in and your entire farm gets washed away, those types of things become, now you're literally having to rebuild everything or just walk away from it. So why, mm-hmm. um, on, on, the, on the organic side of things, I mean, simply put, like it, it looks to be a whole heck of a lot more fun to farm that way. You know, it's, it's so much more than just having a big plot of land and just applying chemicals and water and, and then harvesting. Um, it, you know, it's, it's so much more as far as, you know, you're, you're feeding the people, but you're feeding your soul in that. Why is it so difficult to push this, this movement? I mean, is it just that the forces of economics are so, so leaned against it? Um, yeah, it's, there's actually a couple, we call them barriers, barriers to adoption. Mm-hmm. Uh, number one is consumer awareness. I mean, yep. thank you for having me on your show because you're, you're, you're actually knocking down barrier number one. We need to educate more people on, on the problem. And frankly, I think a- athletes are, have a responsibility to, to treat food as medicine. We yep. as athletes need to uh, cut down on those degrees of separation and if it's, you know, if we're going to spend all this money on training, on training and coaching and supplements, we should, our priorities are out of line because if you're not starting with food, your, your foundation is weak. Interesting. Um, yeah. So I'd, I'd, I'd say consumer awareness. Number one, number two is, is, is policy. We need some policy changes right now. Our federal government, the USDA, they're incentivizing farmers for, for bad behavior. Mm. It has to do with something called the crop subsidy, the crop subsidy and, um, Farmers, conventional farmers, essentially qualifying for crop insurance. Uh, a lot of it has to do with big ag, like Monsanto and other companies hiring lobbyists to create these really bad policies. But separate of that um, was really just technical assistance and consulting. A lot of farmers that want to go organic don't know how. They simply don't know how. Got it. A lot of our land, our land grant universities don't provide this kind of knowledge. And so um, two years ago, Rodale Institute, we've created a two-pronged strategy that we're operating under right now. We're la- we've launched what we call regional resource centers. So we mm-hmm. now have a campus in California, a campus in Iowa, and a campus in Georgia. And we are putting consultants in those offices that are literally going out onto farms all day, every day, and holding the hand of farmers that want to transition. Farmers, all they have to do is call us wow. and, they, and say, hey, Rodale, we need your help. And then Rodale shows up. We also are setting up, uh, we're setting up science at these locations and our plan is to open up several more over the next five years. But yeah. let me tell you a quick story. Um, 
here in Pennsylvania, uh, our governor is now in his second term. And about two years ago, he became privy to some data that showed that Pennsylvania was now the number two at the time was the number two producer of organic food in the nation, mm. second only to California. And he's looking at this data and he's talking to his secretary of agriculture and saying, what's up with this? How is it possible that we're this one of the leading producers of organic food, what's now a hundred billion dollar industry, yet we're taking good taxpayer dollars and bailing out conventional failing conventional farms in this mm. state. And Secretary Redding said, well, yeah, of course, it's because Rodale's been here and they've been teaching farmers right in our backyard how to do this. Mm. And so Governor Wolf was like, this is astonishing. So in 2018, he passed the first ever state farm bill in the history of America. There's never been a state farm bill. That always happens at the federal level. Okay. But he took state taxpayer money and, and created a $22 million farm bill of which a portion of that money came to Rodale and we are now offering free consulting to any farmer in the in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania that wants to transition. Nice. Moreover, there is a, a large food producer here in our state called Bell and Evans. They're the largest organic poultry producer in America. It's a family-owned business, and the family knows and loves Rodale. And so we've created this three-way relationship whereby any farmer that wants to transition gets free consulting from Rodale low interest loans from the Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture um, and access to a long-term contract, which is another barrier. So now these farmers know that they're going to get Rodale's help and they're going to get a 10-year contract from a food producer. Any any farmer that wants to transition, uh, Bell and Evans will buy their grain wow. for 10 years. Wow. And so we have single-handedly created a model where we went from zero to 115 farmers in 13 months representing over 50,000 acres just in one state. Wow. And so all these governors are looking at this and calling Governor Wolf saying, how do we do that in yeah. our own state? So we can knock down these barriers, Troy, and it's happening in real time. Like we're seeing size, seismic shifts, as I said earlier, and it's starting with consumer awareness. And I think it, it, it goes from there. Well, this totally gives me hope. This is, man, this is, I'm, I'm really happy that that we had you on today. So let me ask the, what does a transformation look like? Because I've read, or listened, or, sorry, watched some of these documentaries where they talk about the, the GMO side of things, especially with Monsanto, and then especially the, um, the copywriting or trademarking of the genetic code of the seed, which then makes it incredibly difficult to get rid of that seed off of a farm that has been um, like basically GMO, non-organic, uh, for decades or whatever. So what is the process? If I decided today I had, you know, hundred acres of farmland and I want to convert that over now, am I buying new equipment? Am I, am I sitting on the sidelines for two or three years while my farm sort of regenerates itself? What does it look like? Yeah. Well, the process is getting much easier. So, um, the, the good news is that if you love farming, organic farming is, is right for you. Um, we always say that a good conventional farmer is going to make a great organic farmer. Mm -hmm. Uh, in some cases, you might have to buy some new equipment, um, but we're, what we're espousing at Rodale, our philosophy is let's use what your farm already has. It's, it's a biological process. It's, it's not about bringing in more inputs or buying more equipment. It's about changing your mindset. Okay. Um, and, and the good news is a lot of these big food companies that are now offering long-term contracts, I'll just give a, um, a shout out to some of our other friends at, at, at Pipeline Foods and Cargill and Believe it or not, some big companies like Denone White Wave, which is headquartered there in Boulder, yeah. you know, these companies are all seeing where the market is going. They're seeing consumer behavior shift, Troy, literally overnight. 
And so they're going out and they're offering long-term contracts to farmers that want to transition. And here's the really cool part is, yes, to get your organic certification, it is a three-year transition, but these big food producers are paying the farmer on that transitional grain. So they might not get the full premium in the okay. short term, but they're going to give them maybe a 10% or a 15% premium. So the markets are starting to line up. The biggest, the biggest challenge now is we have to change policy in Washington, D.C., and I think once we do, that's going to be the real tipping point. Um, there was some data that leaked. And again, this is anecdotal, so please don't hold me to this. There's some data that leaked a few years ago uh, that economic theorists inside of Monsanto, uh, first of all, organic is now 6% total U.S. market share. So 6% of all the food purchased at the grocery store is certified organic. And Monsanto's, is organic automatically non-GMO or are the two separate? That is correct. And if you are buying certified organic food, you can be guaranteed that there were no genetically modified okay. crops in that food. Okay, got it. So these theorists projected that when the market went from 6 to 16, that's the tipping point. Interesting. And we got from 0 to 6 in 18 years. Okay. So, okay. you know, you're, you're, a, um, you're a tech entrepreneur and you understand the whole flywheel concept. Yep. And, you know, that six is going to get to eight and that eight yep. is going to get to 12 faster and faster with each turn of the wheel. So I don't think it's long before we see that tipping point. You know, I think a, a, an interesting inflection point on the tipping point would be to stop labeling 6% of our food as organic and start labeling 94% of our food as inorganic or <laughs> something negative, you know? Wow. That was, that was a, that was a mind blowing statement right there. Mm. That's just, a very interesting thought. I just interviewed, um, Anton Viatoro, who is a, he was a U.S. postal writer with, um, Lance Armstrong in the very early days. So he left right after Lance took forth in the, um, the tour of Spain. So it was before the, the, um, he was still on the team for a short time, but, mm -hmm. but he sort of has the asterisk next to his name, Anton's name, because he rode clean for postal. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the questions that I asked him is like, doesn't it kind of drive you crazy that you're the one with the asterisk next to your name? And, you know, so <laughs> It's kind of that the same, a, you know, it's kind of it's the same. It's completely the same. And I mentioned earlier, you know, those lobbyists, I mean, Monsanto has something like 150 lobbyists working all day, every day in Washington, D.C. to make sure that policies like you just suggested don't get implemented. Yeah. Like that's exactly, I mean, Troy, why don't, how can we not have a right to know what's in our food? Yeah. Yeah. Why do we have to label what's not in our food? You know, yeah. that's ridiculous. What a, what a backward concept. Yeah, it's kind of akin to, you know, we've, we always assume that technology is the positive way forward. And with documentaries like The Social Dilemma, we're showing time and time again where technology is insanely easy um, to be used. I mean, certainly in nefarious ways, but even in cases where at the time, I'm sure, you know, as the United States had just won or was winning World War II, and we were thinking about, well, what, you know, as we have this population increase and how do we, how do we feed everybody? And so yield made perfect sense, right, to focus on for a mm -hmm. while, because I don't think intuitively, you don't necessarily think that increasing yield is going to decrease nutrient, nutrients. 
Uh, but that's exactly what happened. It's exactly what happened. You know, and so similar with like social media, where initially I don't think anybody thought, well, we're going to use social media to divide people and to make them basically tear at each other's throats, right? It was always mm -hmm. supposed to bring us all together and bring people that you hadn't seen in 20 years together. And then it ends up sort of taking on a life of its own. And I, I see this mm -hmm. agriculture thing as a very similar thing on a daily basis where where what was supposed to be this this obvious positive ends up taking this this left hand turn somewhere along the way and then it becomes a, a massive negative in the point that 94% like let's talk talking about the 6% 94% of our food is not good laden you know? laden with chemicals yeah, yeah. poison uh, actually um, maybe we could find this and put it in the show notes but uh, a couple of years ago, the Organic Trade Association took a, a back page of the New York Times ad out. It was like, you know, a big deal. And the ad is so profound. It's, you can imagine the back page of the New York Times, how long it is. And it was a list of all of the approved chemicals that are allowed in our food system. Mm. And then in big, bold letters across the page, it says, organic. You won't find these in organic or something like that. Yeah. And it was uh, it was just such a profound visual of, what we don't label, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, that's, you know, you know, I, I want to, Oh, go ahead. No, please. Well, one of the things that I was going to say, the, the thing that I really liked about the regenerative, regenerative label versus organic, I'm a pretty health conscious guy. And I must admit there are times where I look at the price tags of two things, or I look at the quality of two things and whatever. And it's like, do we really need organic, you know? And so we'll make the easy decision out because it's, it's sort of a me versus them or sorry, me versus me, um, decision that I'm making, right? It's just, okay, do I want the, do I want the organic cucumber versus the not organic cucumber by attaching the regenerative, there's almost, a um, an advocacy, associated with that label where now all of a sudden I'm not thinking just in terms of my health today where, you know, whatever, if, you know, I mean, with COVID and, and my industry being down 95%, you know, you scrimp on some certain things and maybe you're trying to save a dollar or two here or there along the way. But when I think about things in terms of regenerative and the health of a nation, a system, all of those things, much, much bigger than myself, it's easier for me to reach for that, that organic, um, cucumber in that, in that case. So I think the, the more that, um, the conversation can shift, not from just that, like organic describes the cucumber, regenerative describes the system, if that makes sense. Wow. Troy, you have done your homework. I am impressed that you even were aware of the fact that we launched the regenerative organic certification. Uh, we actually launched that just last year in partnership with Patagonia and Dr. Bronner's and a couple other brands that came together and they saw what was happening, you know, as more and more of these big food companies moved into organic, which we are not demonizing. Rodale is yep. 100% behind. We launched organic, you know, the USDA now owns the word organic and the uh, USDA also houses the standard. But what's happened is more and more of these big businesses have entered the market. We've seen, like anything, um, the watering down of that standard. And so- yep what, you know, what Rodale wanted to do was to set a higher bar. You know, you're a guy as an entrepreneur, you understand innovation and the need to innovate and to set a higher bar. And so we noticed 
what was happening that a lot of these big food companies were not asking questions around soil health. They were not asking questions around animal welfare. And most of all, they were not asking questions around how are the farm workers being treated in those systems? And so, and, and what are we, how are we treating the climate? How are we farming for a healthier climate? And so Rodale felt the need to lead uh, a conversation and we launched the regenerative organic certification last year. You can actually go to regenorganic.org okay. and read more about that. But that, that is the newest high bar standard in food production. Uh, we have 22 major brands behind us. Uh, several of those brands have already launched products, and um, that is the first standard in the world that is audited and you can trust and takes into account all three of those pillars. So, okay. yeah, it is. A, Troy, you're exactly right. We did that because it's a re- we're trying to start a revolution. This yeah. is this is about a movement. Right. Yeah. Well, I told you I married up. So this is my wife. <laughs> my wife has has slowly educated me over the years on this stuff. So how do you how do you protect that? Because as you said, I remember distinctly the moment, whether it was a commercial or something. Um, <clears throat> and I, I hope I don't offend anybody by this, or certainly the the executives at Walmart. But I remember distinctly when Walmart started carrying organic food. My wife saying, sitting next to me on the couch, like, "Well, there goes organic." You know, mm. that watering wow. down of the label, like that was just like, yep, okay, that's that's no longer a meaningful term. And so how right. do you take this next, like, do you just have to, like, it feels like this is going to be like, you just have to keep throwing the ball down the field and renaming it and things like that. Like, how do you protect at this time to make yeah. sure that, that it can't be infiltrated by lobbyists changing the, you know, sort of moving the, moving the goalposts on you? Yeah, well, Dude, really good. I'm so excited by that question. Um, first of all, I think it does a couple of things. Number one, now what it does by setting an even higher bar, it's, mm-hmm. it says to big food companies, wait, you don't even have a certified organic product. Like you're obsolete. Right. So mm-hmm. like that, that step one is like, we hope that we move the market, the entire market, but then we set the bar so high that it is going to take a lot of work to, for big companies to build regenerative organic supply chains. And we, we, we did that intentionally because you, to set up a high bar means to set a high bar. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't mean that you can cheat that system. And we chose not to house the standard with the U, under the USDA. So lobbyists couldn't influence it. Uh, we control the standard. We actually set up a separate nonprofit called the Regenerative Organic Alliance who houses the standard. Um, again, it is audited by third-party auditors. And um, it's the same auditors that audit for the organic standard. But again, they cannot be, we cannot be bought. Um, lobbyists cannot control the standard. Huh. Put. That's awesome. Hey, pull pull your earbuds out just a little bit again. I just heard the popping. Yeah, just make sure it doesn't okay. like hit your scruff. That? That's better. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So, okay, so you've protected it. Is it is it fundamentally different? So when you say you you raised the bar, how, like how high is the bar raised? What is the fundamental difference between what is now considered today organic versus regenerative organic? Yeah, it, um, it really comes back to these three missing pieces. And the current USDA organic standard does not ask the farmer how are you treating the soil? What are your soil health management practices? How are you sequestering carbon? How are you building fertility using biological methods? Uh, what are your crop rotations? What are your cover crops? 
the organics, the regenerative organic standard is asking all those okay. questions. You have to meet all kinds of, of protocols there. And then on, if you're a farmer that has livestock on the farm, how are those animals being treated? You know, even in, or in the organic industry, you could have dairy cows that get milked and, and fed in a barn and never see the light of day. Mm. So we have very strict rules in the regenerative organic standard that makes sure that animals are getting uh, the dignity that they that they deserve, that they are be, being treated in a humane way with 100% access to the outdoors, to pasture. And then most of all, here's the here's the real eye, eye opener, Troy. I think you were wearing a Patagonia fleece earlier when we started this interview. I was. And yeah, and Patagonia, you know, who's our partner in this whole endeavor. Their CEO said, you know, what was an eye opener for us is we thought we were so great for sourcing certified organic cotton mm. until our, our until our product team started visiting the farms in India, only to learn that there was, you know, child labor being used to harvest the organic cotton. Wow. And so when you, Troy, go to, you know, to REI to buy that fleece, you thought that that Patagonia had all kinds of values that came along yeah. with it. And it did. Patagonia sets a high bar, but their own su supply chain was shocked that this could happen inside of an organic system. And so they're saying that's not okay by us. We are not okay with that. And so the regenerative organic certification protects the very farm workers who are harvesting that cotton. So regenerative organic not only speaks to what you're putting inside your body, but it's kind of like what you're putting inside your soul from a from just like soup to nuts from the the way the farm is run to the way the, the workers are treated, the way the animals are treated, everything. I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to go out on a limb and say that that was quite possibly the most eloquent description of what we've, what we were setting out to do that I've ever heard. Nailed it. <laughs> you nailed it. It's, wow, it's okay. all about the soul. That's interesting. Wow. That was a total accidental, brilliant moment I just had. Who's the marketer, that's huh? What happens, that's what happens when we get together. I know. Who's the marketer? I need to break out my tiny hands. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's a little inside joke between Jeff and I. Old days of lifetime. Lots of lots of laughs were had. Yeah, wow. That that's... On, my on, my, on my worst of days, all I have to do is think back to that dinner table that night and those tiny hands. And I, yeah. That's all it takes <laughs> to go from a bad day to a good day for me, Troy. Yeah, I think we got the waiter to quit his job that night, so... Um, <laughs> I'm glad it was good for, for some of us. Oh, uh, well, you know, that's always been really important to me is, is, uh, is laughter is, is, uh, it's kind of like my, uh, my number one, uh, job requirement is to make sure that people are laughing around me. So, uh, I'm glad we got to share some, share some really good laughs while you were with us at Lifetime. But I'm even happier that, that you have ended up at Rodale chasing your passion. I mean, it's, um, not that you weren't good at your job at Lifetime, you certainly were, but you could tell that this is, uh, this is. I mean, speaking of feeding your soul, this is definitely within your wheelhouse in spades of uh, where you should be spending the rest of your life. Well, thank you, Troy. Let me end by sharing a quick story um, that you, you're not even aware of because this all transpired after I, I left you uh, there in Colorado. But um, I, I'd known for a long time, there was sort of this innate sort of burning desire to join the mission that I'm on today. I had been around the Rodale Institute for a long time, for like 19 years, peripherally. Uh, when I got invited back to the publishing company in 2016 to be on the management team, um, 
I knew there was something more that I was going back home to Pennsylvania to do. And it wasn't to land a big gig in the publishing industry. It was something more mission driven. And I kind of just kept following the thread. And when I got the call to come back to Pennsylvania and serve on the publishing side, I asked the then CEO, Maria Rodale, if I could get more connected to the, to the nonprofit. And she was kind of surprised by that question. And she said, well, would you consider being on our board of directors? We're actually looking to add a few people to the board. And I said, absolutely. I'd love to be on the board of directors of the Rodale Institute. So I served on the board for a year. And uh, around September of 2016, I fell really ill one day, mm. um, got sick, like mysteriously sick. Like you, you, you remember me as an athlete and yeah. a guy who always, you know, took pretty good care of myself. And one day fell ill and a week later wasn't getting better. Two weeks later, wasn't getting better. Went to the doctor and didn't really have like, didn't really have like an established. So I went to like the hospital and then they sent me to a general practice doctor and he evaluated me over the course of several days, ran blood work, you know, thought it was, the, he thought it was the, like a really bad flu. Mm. This goes on for weeks and I wasn't getting better. Um, Went through six other doctors, about $40,000 worth of testing, only to, they, there was inconclusive, there was nothing. Like they, they could not find what caused my health collapse. Wow. Three months go by, I now I'm on medical leave. And that doctor, the last thing he could do for me is he looked me in the eye and he said, Jeff, we don't, we don't know what's wrong with you, but I think it's because you're under a ton of stress. You just did this big move back to Pennsylvania a year ago. You took on this big job. Um, here's a prescription to an antidepressant, mm. get some rest. And that's when I knew something was wrong. And, um, several weeks went by. I now was, I, I literally was depressed at that point. Imagine getting that diagnosis from your doctor. I was hopeless. And someone pointed me towards what's called a functional medicine doctor. Okay. Yep. So I went to see a functional medicine doctor who I now understand it's a systems based approach to medicine. Yeah. So this doctor who is my doctor today, he looked at me and he said, Jeff, okay, you're going to get better. He said, it's not going to happen overnight, but we're literally going to rebuild you from the soil up. He said, um, let me do some testing. He did his own diagnostics. He found that I had chronic Lyme disease. That was what the root cause of my health collapse was. Whoa. Okay. But at that point I was so far gone with my, with my, with the, the Lyme disease had been active for months. And at that point, there was no pharmaceutical that was going to get me better. Mm. So he had to use systems-based interventions like diet and lifestyle and other natural protocols. Um, and would you believe that over three months, six months, nine, I mean, little by little, I got better and better to where I'm now 100% better. Yeah. But in the, in, in the bottom of that journey, like in, in, in sort of my lowest point, I remember a very clear calling that said, when you feel well enough, you're going to march out of corporate America and you're going to go to work for the Rodale Institute and you're mm. going to fulfill this mission, connecting agriculture with human health. Like my own personal experience became a micro version of the macro. Yeah. And um, by March of 2017, I was well enough to get back to work. And I um, was, you know, uh, I was literally asked to be, to be in the role that I'm in today. I was invited into this position and the way that the stars all kind of aligned. It, it was clear to me that I had been on a path for a very long time and that this is, this is my calling. Wow. Well, it suits you. <laughs> it does. Well, thank you. Yeah. yeah. Well, I feel very much at home. You know, it's, um, I also consider it a huge honor to be able to do what I do. Yeah. 
Well, you're my you're my second connection now to that part of Pennsylvania um, that I've made a promise to. That so I'm I'm excited because I'm gonna. I think the whole family is now going to be taking uh, a trip out to Pennsylvania. We'll do unpaved, and then we'll stop uh, at the Rodale Institute and hang out there and learn how to farm. You're gonna totally. That sounds like the perfect trip, and I'm gonna ride unpaved with you. I've been wanting to do that ride forever. Perfect. It's amazing. All right. Well, it's a date. Yeah. Let's definitely do it. I'm, I'm not kidding. Let's, uh, this is a, um, uh, I think it really did start. I mean, my wife, this has been my wife's calling in the functional medicine side of things. She, this is what she lives and breathes. And so, um, she's, mm. she's going to punch me in the face that like it took somebody else, you know, talking, <laughs> talking about it to get <laughs> well, he, me excited about it. But here's how you can make it up to her, okay. right? when you guys come out, um, we're going to put you up at our guest house at the original J.I. Rodale homestead on his original farm, which is a quarter mile from my home. We actually have a guest house where we can put up um, great folks like you that come through town. And so why don't you guys plan to stay there and you can see the birthplace of modern day organic agriculture. That would be an absolute honor. And uh, I think you just made my anniversary. So that's uh, <laughs> it's yeah. it, my anniversary is until several months, but still <laughs> I'm going to. You're, 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 you're welcome. Yeah, indeed. Awesome. Well, that is, that's fantastic. I can't wait. That's uh, yeah. You know, I, these are funny. These, um, these interviews that I've been doing with this podcast, it's um, in some ways it's kind of like a blind date. And in your case, I knew you. And so I knew that we were going to talk about some fun and interesting things and thought provoking things and things that I think would hopefully light a fire, but you just never know. And I think this has so far exceeded my expectations for where this conversation could go. And I, mm. I just really want to thank you for coming on and, mm -hmm. um, you know, helping us do our part again, the, the, the micro becomes the macro and if, uh, let's all be part, everybody within earshot of this, of turning that, um, six to 16 or 94 down to, uh, uh, what is it? 80, 90s. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. 84, six. 94. Down, yeah, yeah. So going from six to 16 is, is definitely doable and absolutely, uh, life altering for the, for the vast majority of us. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more with you. And, um, if, if you all that are listening today are inspired to go deeper on our work, um, I encourage you to check out rodaleinstitute.org. Um, if you believe in what I'm talking about today, please consider supporting our work. You know, as a mission-driven nonprofit, we rely on people like you that want to see a better world, that yeah. want to have healthier food on your plate. And if you believe in that, then please consider uh, supporting us and joining the movement. Yeah, here, here. Are Do you guys see yourselves, um, is it something that's, uh, like, as you expand or as you spread the word, is this something where you would have to... Um, I'm going to end up cutting this out because I'm saying it so ineloquently. Let me ask that question again. As you guys think about spreading your message across the country, is it something that comes from Rodale from, um, by replicating yourselves or by getting other organizations involved in Rodale and taking that back home? Like, are you guys looking Great. to expand across the country or is it really yeah. more about empowerment? Uh, sure. Uh, it's, it's absolutely both. And okay. as a mission driven, uh, 70 person organization trying to change the world, we do everything we do in partnership. Okay. We do not do it in isolation. Um, all of our greatest work has been done in partnership. I'll give you one quick example. Uh, I know there's probably not a lot of NASCAR fans listening to this episode, but they, uh, the only independent family-owned NASCAR racetrack in the world that remains happens to be located about an hour north of us. 
in, in the Pocono Mountains of Pennsylvania, Pocono Raceway. The family has a third generation daughter who had a lot of health challenges, similar to you and me, Troy. And uh, she, her whole life, she was told she could never have children. She could never be healthy. Uh, several years ago, she found her way to a functional medicine doctor who explained to her uh, that organic food can make a difference in her health. And it radically transformed her. Wow. So much so that um, as the third generation owner of the raceway, she wanted to give back. And the family owns several hundred, if not thousands of acres in the Pocono Mountains, which is a is kind of a food desert. If you live in rural Pennsylvania, there's not a lot of places to buy organic food, mm. let alone the very fans that come to a NASCAR race are often some of the most unhealthy people um, that we that you know that that are in professional sports. So three years ago, Ashley Walsh had a vision to transform an 80-acre plot into one of the most sophisticated regenerative organic farms in, in the United States. And wow. who did she call? She calls Rodale out of the blue. And we have entered into the most beautiful partnership whereby Rodale now has staff on site up at Pocono. And they launched a whole new operation called Pocono Organics. Check it out. Um, that facility is redefining concessions in professional sports. There are now professional sports teams that are flying into the Pocono Mountains just to see what they have built up there. And now um, every weekend in the summer when they host NASCAR races, those fans can literally buy organic hot dogs and organic no food at the concession stand. So that's awesome. That's, I, I want to leave your audience with this idea that we all play a role. Even the furthest partner that you can yeah. possibly imagine can, can play a role in transforming the future of human health. So, well, it's yeah. a great distinction too, because like, it doesn't all have to be kale salads and tofu. I mean, it's, it's, there's no. a, this is such a wide spectrum of where we can, you know, collectively increase the health of everything that we're eating. Um, mm -hmm. even if we don't change our diet substantially, you know, just making those things that are in our diet healthier and, and, uh, more Correct. sustainable. That's awesome. Yep. Correct. Well, Jeff, thanks buddy. Yeah, it's been an honor. Can't uh, wait to do it again, Troy, and stay on the path you're on. Thank you for being in the fight with us. Oh, likewise. Yeah, we'll definitely, we'll, we will continue this conversation around a wooden table outside on a farm in Pennsylvania. I'll bring all the podcasting equipment and we'll continue this conversation. Yeah, let's do it. We'll get somebody That's smarter good. like my wife to fill in for me and actually uh, ask some of these good questions. Well, I can't wait to meet her and to uh, show her around. It'll be a lot of fun. Cool. Well, you're the best, Jeff. I appreciate it. Well, everybody, yeah. I hope you enjoyed this episode. More people racing more uh, often is and having more fun in the process is our mission. So racing more often, having more fun in the process on a good belly of organic, sustainable, mm. good food is absolutely the way to go. Thanks again to Jeff Catch, and that's T-K-A-C-H, Jeff Catch of the Rodale Institute for enlightening us about regener regenerative organic farming. Um, the best way to support this podcast is to be sure to click subscribe on iTunes or follow on Spotify uh, to be notified of new shows. And please take uh, just three minutes to give us a rating and a quick review on iTunes. Um, we do a special post for each episode on Instagram. So look for the post of episode 20 with an insanely handsome picture of Jeff. If you have any comments or questions, we are at Athlinks or shoot us an email to podcast at athlinks.com. Share it with friends far and wide to help spread the word. Tell people about it when you're in line at the grocery store buying some organic food. And until next time, happy racing, everybody.